Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 5th chapter, verse 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. The topic for today is prayer. My hope is that in saying that, you are thinking, I am so glad I came to church this morning. Prayer is so important that anything that will help remind and encourage me is something that I value. Now my guess is the vast majority of you were not thinking exactly that. And maybe your thoughts or your emotional response to whatever degree it happened was in a different direction, maybe thinking, oh no, <laughs> today would have been a good day not to come to church. We know prayer is important, so why wouldn't it be something that's exciting for us to talk about? And most of us have a somewhat complicated relationship with prayer. For some of you, the word should is in there. If you have been part of the church for a while, you've developed some concept of what your prayer life should be like, how you should be praying. And whatever that standard is, however it was formed, my guess is uh, you feel like you're not doing as much as you should, whoever's defining that for you. So prayer could be a source of guilt. We know it's important, but we're not doing it enough. We're not experiencing what we should in prayer. Um, there's a certain vulnerability with prayer. For some of you who are Christian, you're committed to your Christian faith. The topic of prayer challenges you. 
because of a concern of wanting to remain in the faith, what happens if I really lay out before God what I want and trust Him? And He doesn't answer my prayers as I expect Him to. It's almost like to say I'm committed enough to faith that I'm not going to put myself in a position where the, the next step would be to not believe. And so for the sake of preserving my faith, I'm just not going to trust Him that much. We do that. That's weird, but we do it. Uh, some of you are on the other side of that. Maybe you, you did really depend on God in a way that you did all the right things, and yet your prayers were not answered, and now you're grappling with what does it look like to keep going with bitterness and disillusionment. So the topic of prayer just digs that up for you. Um, for some, the challenge of prayer is simply that we're, we're used to being stimulated by our devices, and prayer is just one of the most uncomfortable things that we can do in however we're praying. Just sitting still raises the awareness of the, the state of our being that we're constantly trying to distract ourselves from. So you spend the whole time in prayer waiting to be able to rise and just check your phone again because then out of prayer you feel relief. In prayer you feel distress. And so oddly enough, for all sorts of reasons, those are just a sampling, prayer, which should be something exciting, something helpful, a source of strength, winds up for messy human beings uh, a place of guilt, of fear, of trouble, of resentment, uh, these other things. And so today as we talk about prayer, what I want to encourage is something simple. So we're talking about prayer today because we're in a short series in May and June where we're talking about five core practices of Christianity. All Christians should be doing these five things, and at our church, we organize around them because they're so basic that we want to make sure that we don't stray from the basics. Prayer is one of them, but we only have one sermon on it, so it's clearly not comprehensive. But what I want to do today is encourage you to be praying with, with a simple idea to take away some of the complexity of how prayer may be working in your life. And the simple idea is that prayer basically is drawing near to God. That's verse 16. Uh, let us with confidence draw near. Now you may say, well, what does that even mean? Isn't God everywhere, right? We don't draw near to God. God is just there. But there is something in an attitude of the mind and in our hearts. There's something about the orientation of our lives. There's something about our expectations. There's something about our posture of how we go throughout the day. That even though God is everywhere, God is in everything. God is guiding us. God's ways are presented to us. We get distracted. We get unfocused. And it's not that we always need to be thinking and doing explicitly religious things, but we're meant to walk through life mindful of God, with God. That's our source of strength, our help, our confidence, our joy. And so drawing near to God is, is an attitude that says, I'm going to, to remain mindful. I will have God with me in all that I do. My joys, I will give thanks to him. My challenges, I'll ask him for guidance when I'm uh, fearful, I'll ask him for protection. Uh, there's a natural sense if God is with us that, that staying near to God is the nature of the Christian life. So prayer is a way to draw near. Think about if you uh, drew near to a human being, odds are there would be some communication. You would talk to that person. So it wouldn't be strange if you're drawing near to God that you would speak the things that you're thinking. But if you're on a long road trip with somebody, maybe you've run out of things to say, but you're still aware that you're present with that person. So sometimes in prayer, you're just still aware of God's presence. There's various ways to pray, 
But what I want you to think about today is um, all of them are some kind of outworking of this invitation from God, confidently draw near. And if you're doing that, prayer will be part of your life because you're communicating to the God that you are near. So today what I want to do is talk about three categories of prayer. So when you do draw near, what do you do? And I'm thinking more of the verbal categories, but again, prayer is a big topic, and so there's a lot more we could talk about meditation and silence. But today, typically when we draw near to God, here are three ways that we do it. We do it in praise, we do it in petition, and we do it in confession. So those are the three categories today for us to think about what are ways we could draw near to God. So first, we draw near to God with praise or in praise. Now, this is something that human beings want to do, and by that, I don't necessarily mean to gather with Christians to praise God, but I mean that the human impulse to, to have some sense of, of greatness, some vision of something beautiful, some sense of connection to the world, some um, grasp on meaning. Those are the things we're looking for, and the Bible presents um, a, a God who fulfills all of those things, and so if we see God, if we're walking with God, if we're connected with God, there's something where our souls are right, where we're experiencing the things that we long for, but because in this broken world we don't experience that, and so those longings um, we satisfy them or seek to satisfy them elsewhere. But that seeking is a sign there's something woven into humanity that you want something bigger, something greater, something more wonderful or beautiful. And there's something about praise that's actually good. When, when you're actually in the mindset where you're naturally doing it, there's something that's usually an energy, a positivity with it. So for example, you're on Vimeo and you're watching videos and there's some woman on a bicycle who does this flip with some kind of twist and she does something that you can't even comprehend. You're surprised by it. It's amazing. You know, the, the, the reaction to that, if she then walked in the room, you would want to, to speak it. You'd want to say, that was amazing. <laughs> you wouldn't want to contain it. But because you're there on a video, you're thinking, you know, let me call my roommate in to show the video. Let me forward the link. You need to see this. There's something about seeing something that's greater than you expected that elicits a response, and that response is usually a good one. Imagine we could feel like that all the time. We're not supposed to ex try, and we're not supposed to assume that, but there is something in our humanity that says when we see something great, majestic, marvelous, beautiful, skillful, whatever the case is, it stirs something in us that we want to express. And what we're told is there is a God who is wise and powerful and merciful and gracious and compassionate. If we could only see behind the veil, uh, praise would be so natural. What we're invited into in the Bible is to draw near. And if we're drawing near to God, it's not that we'll always see him, that we'll always feel great. It's not that we'll always be excited. But there should be some component to say, I want to draw near to God. With that, I want to understand his beauty. I want to see his greatness because my soul needs it. And so, uh, in verse 16, it says that we are to draw near to the throne of grace. It doesn't say draw near to God, but ask the question, who's on that throne? This is biblical imagery. The throne is, is kingly imagery. There's, the assumption is if there's a person on a throne, that person has great power. Presumably, they should be exercising great wisdom. Usually, the thrones in most cultures are 
elaborate and beautiful. So there's this imagery of God that we conceive of as, as our ruler, our creator, the one filled with wisdom and wealth and power and glory and honor. With confidence, let's draw near to that throne. And it's a throne of grace. And so we have songs like Amazing Grace. Uh, if you don't understand grace, spend time thinking about it. There's something about uh, this concept of generosity and kindness and goodness that stirs our souls. God is pictured as being a great king. He sits on a throne of grace. And therefore, drawing near to God should be something that we do with thanksgiving and with praise. Now, one of the reasons I suspect this is hard for us is precisely because God is a living being. And as living beings, there's something complicated that's going on in the dynamic. So let me give an example of how the greatness of non-living beings can often stir to us the kind of awe and rest for the souls. And I'm talking about how many people experience nature. So we're a city church. Some of you are here because you find the woods boring. But it seems that many people are wired to, to have some positive connection with some aspect of nature. For some, it's the ocean, the sound of the ocean, the vastness of it, the, the coming and going and the power of it. For some, it's the mountains, these enormous, beautiful, if there's snow on the top, um, for some of you, it could be the trees that you go into the forest and there you are all around you, the trees that the birds sit in. Maybe it's all of those things, maybe it's something else. But there's something about nature that a lot of people find stirs their souls. And why is that? Because often the things in nature are beautiful, you know, the specific birds and the animals. Often they're very vast, these huge trees, these huge mountains, these huge waves. And there's something about that experience that makes us feel smaller, but in a good way. It's weird that in the presence of something great, this mountain and lake and all of these animals, and, and it's just you, there's something small, but that actually brings peace to the soul. And so, so you're in the presence of something great uh, that draws something out of you that in some, for some of you, in some cases, feels right. Now we live in a city, lots of great things in the city. So you go to an event and there's a human being who is very good looking, very wise, very talented, very accomplished. Now, what is your response? If you have some connection and benefit from that person's greatness, then you are excited to be there. If you could get a photo next to that person to show your friends, then you want to magnify that greatness. You want your friends to think that person's even greater than they actually are because you're deriving some benefit from it. But our nature is, many of us go into those environments and we feel small in the light of somebody who's great, but it's not a smallness that brings peace to our souls. It's a smallness of something that says, I don't belong. And therefore, I don't want to be seen and I want to get out of here. And you resent greatness. So the funny thing is, there's something about us that should be stirred by greatness and beauty, skill, ability. But, but when it's personal as persons, we find ourselves thinking, but, but I want that for me. Some of you are weird enough to envy the mountains. But I suspect most of us are not. You could see the mountain and the mountain is great and you're just able to accept the greatness of the mountain because it's a mountain. But the greatness of the architect, when you're an architect in your 20s still taking your exams, is not inspiring you after that last exam that you're retaking. And all of a sudden greatness shrinks us down. 
Um, human beings are meant to marvel, to praise, to encourage. There's something wrong where we don't see God in his greatness, and there's something about the concept of God's perfection that rather than drawing us in with our lack of confidence, we want to get away. And, and therefore, the concept of praise to us, the reason it becomes difficult, is it feels like something we have to force ourselves to do. And when you have to force yourself to do it, then the resentment comes up and you think, it must be because God is egotistical. He's up there with low self-esteem needing to hear us praise him. <laughs> that is not at all the case. God does not need our praise. There's something about our praise of God that we need. It's not that God needs to be reminded of his goodness. It's that we in reminding ourselves of God's goodness, find ourselves starting to participate in that goodness. And therefore, it's not simply, um, it's not simply that we want to feel authentic, which is good, and you're not feeling like praising God, and therefore it doesn't feel authentic to praise Him. But in, in our ethics, we, we want to be careful not to be people who flatter others. And when you're not seeing God's greatness and you're not feeling it, it actually feels problematic, and it would be if it was just flattery. And that's where, here are two things just on this topic that um, could maybe help you with the discipline of praise. One is to remember that it's true that God is powerful, great. So you're not trying to convince yourself or anyone else of that. If you just could buy up front, this is true. And therefore it's not flattery, it's not something I have to do, but, but I wanna meditate on what's good. So it's true, but it's also good that if you recognize my soul needs to be in tune with what is good and great and encouraging, therefore the, the invitation to praise is not something to say, come on, get out of that bad mood. But to recognize as people, boy, if we could be more in tune with the truth of God's goodness and power and beauty. So let me bring to mind the things that will help me to do that. So, so I'm talking in one category of praise, but often we subdivide that into two categories of adoration and thanksgiving. In adoration, we remember who God is. In thanksgiving, we remember what he's done. The Bible is a good guide, guide for us to do a study in God's attributes. Learn about God's wisdom. Learn about God's mercy. Learn about God's power, these things. So then when you pray, you say, there's something true that, that right now I may not be feeling, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name those things. So we adore God. And then thanksgiving, the Bible tells us about these various things God has done. God heard his people and he delivered them. We could give thanks for it. But that shapes us, God's goodness in our real lives, so that we could say, Lord, you fed me today. I will pause and be thankful. So you develop those habits to say, you know what, I'm prone towards cynicism, negativity, fear. I play it safe, and all of that's, I'm drawing away from God. There's an invitation to confidently draw near to God. And if you're going to do that, one of the things you should be saying is, Lord, you are good. I'm grateful for your provision. I want to see more of your goodness. Your soul needs that. You really need it. And so form the habits of doing it. So draw near to God with praise. Uh, this throne of grace, that's a good place to go. So go. Now here's a second category. The second category is petition. So on the one hand, it's natural when God's people come in, we praise because we remember who God is and what he's done. But but we're always in need. And so it's also natural for us to ask for things. Now, this is probably what's most natural for us because uh, God, who's in the heavenly realms, we're less in tune with his greatness. So it's harder for us to access it. We're more in tune daily with our own fears, our disappointments, the lack in our life. And so it's easier to say, here's something I need. 
and so petition is, is how most of us most naturally pray. That's okay. Make sure that you're praising God. Make sure you're confessing. Um, but ask, ask God for things. So in verse 16, we are to draw confidently to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we are people who have needs. Sometimes there's great time of need where we're just aware right now, I really need help. But there's a healthy understanding of dependence upon God where we realize actually, I need God for the breath in my lungs. I need God for his guidance in this good decision. And therefore, every time is a time of need. So in your desperate times, be persistent, ask. But in the non-desperate times, draw near for grace and for mercy. If we draw near to the throne of grace, the hope is we will receive from the one who sits in the throne. And so often it's our pride and our guilt. We don't want to admit we have need, and therefore to make a habit of praying out of need is something that we don't want to admit to ourselves, and therefore our pride keeps us from receiving and keeps us from rejoicing. Um, and it's also our guilt, our sense of, you know, part of my need is I haven't done enough. And so, um, so maybe if I praise God more first, I could then have the right to ask him for things. And that's where we have to understand, no, <laughs> draw near with confidence. Praise him because it's good. Ask him for things if you need. Um, and so we need humility. One of the things that we need in prayer is to be humble enough. But true humility is a good characteristic. True humility, which says, I have need, not because I'm a miserable human being and I'm incompetent, but because I'm a human being. See, when we say I'm a miserable human being and incompetent, then we lack the confidence to draw near. So the Bible is not encouraging a lack of confidence. It's saying be confident, but not self-confident. Be confident because of this God that you're in relationship with. And so draw near with confidence so that you would receive grace and mercy. So you do need help. You are imperfect. And so with humility, we draw near. Uh, there's a, prayer, a book on prayer by a guy named Ulla Hallisby. And he talks a lot about a sense of helplessness and dependence, saying you can't have a good prayer life if you don't have that. And frankly, when I read it, I think, oh, but I don't always want to feel helpless and dependent. That's not a, a feeling that I like. I want to feel confident in God's greatness. Yes. But even the confidence in God's greatness, there is a, a dependence on it, a healthy dependence. So um, here's something from his book. He says, helplessness united with faith produces prayer. So being helpless is not good on its own. <laughs> but helplessness united with faith in God then motivates us to action. If we, if we have no faith and we just feel helpless, we're going to shrink back. He says, helplessness united with faith produces prayer. Without faith, our helplessness would only be a vain cry of distress in the night. And that's what many of us are afraid of, that vain cry of distress. Lord, I'm needy. Uh, and we lack the faith to say God is good. If I, if I could draw near to him, I believe there will be mercy and grace. Now, that doesn't mean God will give me everything I ask for. And that's the humility to say that if I believe God is wise and knows what I do not know, on the one hand, I really know enough to have the conviction I want this, and I think it's good and right. It's not something that I'm asking that God would disapprove of, but something in line with how I think God thinks. 
but the humility to say, Lord, I'm going to be both honest and bold in asking, but have the faith to trust that in your wisdom, um, how this works itself out could be that even if it's not answered how I like, I, I still trust that you've heard me. That's hard for us. So, so here's a second thing. One is we need humility. But we also need a confidence in the wisdom of God, which means that, that God hears us if we belong to God, if we come in faith, if we've received his mercy. God hears our prayer. And in his wisdom, sometimes it works itself out in ways that take us quite a long time to figure out. So Brian Chapel has a book called Praying Backwards. And he talks about the counsel that he gives, and I think it's useful for us as we're on this topic. He says, with faith in God's sovereignty over eternity undergirding your prayers. So you believe that God is sovereign over eternity undergirding your prayers. I've often encouraged others not to pray for God to heal, that's a specific example, if it is his will, as though he may heal or maybe not. Instead, I encourage my friends and family to pray for God to heal according to his will. Then, whether he answers with temporary healing that keeps a loved one with us longer, or whether he answers with the perfect healing of taking that one into Jesus' arms, we remain confident that he is blessed. Now, look, this is really hard, and we, we need to make sure we're not playing mind games with ourselves. But that attitude to say, you know, in our hesitance to say, Lord, I don't know if I should confidently ask for it or not. He's saying, believe that if you, if you say to God, here's something that's important to me, that God has heard you. But also, as you pray that God's will be done, trust that in his wisdom, he, he may have purposes that we don't currently understand. And so the confidence to say, if I've asked, let me believe that he's heard and let me trust him, even though it may involve an adventure of disillusionment, of confusion, of bitterness. That's part of ongoing faith where we still draw near. So that doesn't answer it for us, but if we're humble and if we believe God is wise, we can keep at it and, and we're told to persistently pray. And so if it's not working out, it's not, well, I asked once and so I'm, not, I'm just going to give up, but, but keep seeking God and keep trusting God. It's that faith with humility that enables our prayer life. So James, New Testament book of the Bible, gives a couple of reasons why we don't have thriving lives. One, he says, is you don't ask. <laughs> so that's what Jesus invites us to. The New Testament says, if you have something you want from God, ask him. But James also says, but you ask and don't receive because you ask with mixed motives. You actually um, need some growth. And therefore, prayer is a place of sanctification. The persistence in prayer, I asked, and it's not being answered. As you go back, sometimes you gain access to the wisdom of God in your honest expressing, Lord, I'm confused. Uh, this is something good that I want. This is something that is painful. Let me bring this before you. And it's not that you get a clear answer, but sometimes in the remaining with God, that's where God imparts his wisdom to you or his growth or, or accomplishes some purpose that may not be on your radar, but God is doing in your life. Um, and so we are meant to ask. We are needed to humbly trust uh, but remember God's wisdom and be consistent. Keep going back to the throne of grace so that you will receive mercy and grace for help in your time of need. Uh, every day is a time of need. Some days are times of greater awareness of need. Uh, draw near to God. That's what we're encouraged to do. So 
we draw near to God with praise, we draw near to God with petition. And petition, we're just petitioning God, asking for things. Sometimes we use the language of supplication. We humbly say, I want these things, God. We're meant to do that, to be honest before God about who we are and what we want. Here's the third way that we draw near to God. It's confession. Um, so the interesting thing is those categories of praise and petition should be appealing, should be attractive to say, you know what, I want that. If you're not a Christian, to say a, a Christian prayer life that, that is, I'm going to, I'm invited to have encouragement in my being to see the greatness of God, you should want that, I would think. Even if you have trouble thinking that God is real, but, but that vision of something that, that stirs your soul to goodness, you should want. And the fact that God hears us and cares about what's going on in our lives, that he invites us to, to speak to him out of what we need, those two things are attractive. So, so why are we not doing it? And, and we could come up with all sorts of excuses. Well, I don't really see the greatness of God, and therefore he's somewhere in the heavenly realms. I don't have access to it, so it's just hard. And because I pray for things, and I don't want to assume that God is Santa Claus, and so I'm not just going to keep asking for things. And so, so we have these more sophisticated ways of saying, uh, here's why I'm not doing that. But sort of the Bible's analysis is that but there's something deeper going on that's keeping you from drawing near to God. And this is why confession is so important. The Bible uses language of sin. Now that term, if, you're, if you haven't studied the Bible, it may not mean exactly what you think it means if you've been exposed to judgmental religion. But certainly sin uh, has to do with our turning from God instead of drawing near to God, walking away from God. And then our desires, our actions wind up being corrupted. The Bible says all human beings have sinned, every one of us. We're invited to draw near to God. The thing that keeps us from praising God and his goodness, the keep, thing that keeps us from confidently being persistent in asking is something in us that says don't draw near. Uh, it will be humiliating. Don't you see the greatness of God? Don't you know who you are? Doesn't God see all things? He, he knows what you've done. Why would God give you anything good? Each of us have a different dialogue. It may not be exactly that, but those are the kinds of things that there's something in us that says, don't draw near. Or maybe, draw near quickly, boldly, and then watch. Nothing's going to happen. And so you've got that conscience that says, see, trust yourself, not God. Why would you not want to praise God? <laughs> Why would you not want to believe that God will provide everything that you need in life? It's not that we don't want to. There's something in us that, that is unable to. And therefore what we need is help dealing precisely with that issue. Which is why confession is always part of the ordinary prayer life of Christians. In verse 15 it says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now here's where we get into why the book of Hebrews is quite complicated, because most of us don't have familiarity with that Old Testament temple priestly system. And so um, maybe that imagery doesn't capture your mind, but for simplicity, in the, the, the priests in the Jewish culture, who offered various sacrifices, thanksgiving, joy, part of their intercession, but sacrifices for sin. There was one priest, the high priest, the, the chief priest, the priests of priests who one time a year, one person, one time a year, went into the holiest of places in the temple. Nobody should go there because if God is present there, uh, unless you go offering sacrifices for your own sins, you, if you step into there, you can't stand to be in God's presence, you will die. 
So in the annual pattern, once a year, one priest went one time in order to signify that, that the, the one sacrifice of sins being made now gives people access to God. But the people would say, but I'm not going in there. I need the priest who's made himself worthy who will go on my behalf. And if he's interceding for me, then I could at least come to the outer courts of the temple. That's not how we think, but that imagery of the Bible says, if you understand that, understand Jesus as the true high priest. So the story of Christianity is he was crucified, he was raised, he ascended into heaven. The book of Hebrews says his ascending is entering the real heavenly place of God in the way that the temple was only a, an instructional reality to a certain degree. Jesus actually went into the presence of God and is seated there, and he's the only one worthy because he's the only one without sin. What we're told is that we could draw confidently towards the throne of grace because next to the throne, there's an advocate. There's somebody who knows us and our weakness and is there to speak on our behalf because when you say, but I don't want to go, what will I say to God? How could I convince God to let me in? How could I convince God not to judge me for the things I think or the things that I've done? And what we're told is, you don't have to because there's somebody doing that for you. And so, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted, yet without sin. That distinction is interesting. As a culture, we don't talk about sin. That's uncomfortable language. It's confusing language. So we don't talk about sin, but it's interesting. We may talk about weakness, but we have this odd relationship with it. We don't like being weak. And while we're trying to create the ethic of being encouraging to those who are weak, in our pride, we, we look down on those who are weak. So we have a problem with weakness. I hate being weak. And in order to make myself feel stronger, it helps if I can hate somebody who's weak in some way. It makes me feel better about myself. For the Bible, the problem is not weakness. It's not that weakness is good. It's not that we're meant to stay weak. But weakness can be fixed. If you're weak, what are the things you could do to be strengthened? The problem is not weakness, the problem is sin. Our problem is sin can't be fixed, so we ignore it and focus on weakness. But we remain weak. In the old covenant, you had a priest who was weak and sinful, so he needed to offer sacrifices for himself. What we have in Jesus Christ is not somebody who is sinful. He was tempted, so he knows our experience, our struggles, but without sin but he's not unable to understand our weakness. Jesus never sinned, but Jesus did take on weakness. He was born without language, without being able to feed himself. Like every human being, he depended on his parents. He was subject to the Roman government, and he went silently without an advocate to defend him. You read the Bible story, and, and Jesus takes on weakness, recognizing he's tempted, in all of the ways that we are tempted and fail. And does that mean every experience we've experienced in its particulars? No. But in its generalities, yes. There's nothing hard and shameful that you have experienced that Jesus doesn't have compassion for because somehow, in his being tempted and tested, he knows our weakness. So we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in every way, and yet without sin. And so why did he go to the cross? And what we're told is he went not for his sins, but to make 
an offering for ours to deal with our sin that through his humiliation, suffering, and death, he takes our humiliation, suffering, and death. And so now before God, we have a high priest, not one who sins, but one who bore the judgment for sin. Now we have one, not one who is only strong and despises the weak, but one who knows our weakness. It is on that basis we're told with confidence, drawn near to the throne of grace so that you will receive grace and mercy for help in your time of need. Chapter 5, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with, with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And so we find ourselves saying, I, I don't want to go through another day of this, of crying out to God again. But there's Jesus who comes and he cried out to him who is able to save him from death. And then the question is, was his prayer answered? It's actually kind of a hard question because it was and it wasn't. On the one hand, he wasn't saved from death because he went to the cross and died. On the other hand, he was not left in the tomb, but he was raised. And so he was saved from death. And so maybe Jesus, in the weakness of his flesh, expressed the desire, Lord, may I enter the heavenly realms without going through the cross. Spare me from that death, because once I'm dead, I can't raise myself. By faith, I'll have to depend on you, the Father, to send that spirit to bring me up. How was his prayer answered? Well, he was not spared death. And yet his prayer was answered that he was not delivered over to death in its finality, but God raised him up. The wisdom of God somehow, as Jesus with loud cries and supplications said, um, spare me this death. God's kindness was, was not simply to say, I will spare you death, but I will spare you ultimate death, but I will spare all of the rest of my people any kind of death by not answering this prayer in the way that you're praying it, but by allowing you to suffer this death for these people. So in offering yourself, you take on their sins so they won't. But you will not suffer death as though that is the end of you and your existence, but you will be raised up to the highest place. And so Jesus, who was tested but without sin, has the highest honor. He has the place of honor. But what we're told is those who have tested and did sin, that now we have an advocate at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, somebody who knows our weakness. And so why did God answer Jesus' prayer in that way? Verse 9 says, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He was not spared death so that we can be saved from death. There's something in the wisdom of God that in that terrible moment, God in love cared for us, which is why for Christians, the persistence in humble prayer is not simply to say in the wisdom of God, I can trust that even though my life is unfolding exactly in the opposite way of what I've prayed, but I'm going to just in some vague commitment, trust his wisdom. The Christian says, well, I do need to trust his wisdom, but, but here's the thing. I don't need to doubt that he has loved me and has provided for my future. And therefore, it's not an, a mental game I'm playing with myself to say, don't turn away from God in your disappointment. But there's a confidence to say, Jesus faced that disappointment for me. And now in this disappointing reality, I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to keep coming near and trust that at the end of the ages, I will see the wisdom of God, not because he's going to explain to me how he answered or dealt with this prayer, 
but because he's already shown me that he's watching out for me. He sees my fundamental needs. He has provided a place. And therefore, we could keep going. We could keep crying out with loud cries and tears. Jesus did it. His followers will do it too. Um, but when we confess our need, our sin, we're not admitting to God something he doesn't know. That's what keeps us away. I don't want to be seen. The wisdom of God is he knows about the depth of our sin, which is why he dealt with it. The problem is you don't know the depth of your sin, so you're not dealing with it. So you're staying away from God, and you're stuck in this cycle where you're praising God in some false religious way, and you're asking for God in some safe way. If we have that high priest seated, the advocate, the one who will speak for us when we have nothing to say, the one who gave himself for us when we have nothing we could do to make things right, then what we're told is now you're not telling God about the thing he didn't know. You're just being truthful about the things that, that God is dealing with. And it's in that confession. It's not that we need to be negative people always looking for what's wrong in us. We need to be honest people. The second you see something wrong in you, don't look away. Just name it, Lord, there it is. I need mercy and grace. So instead of going away, hoping I can get it together and come back, I'm going to draw near to the throne of grace. In my day of need, I need mercy. And so, Lord, I'm going to come to you. And it's that pattern of confession that says you don't look for sin in your life. Live an upright life. And when you try it, you're going to see sin. And in your discouragement, you're going to want to walk away. The gospel says don't. Turn back. Draw near. He is able to help you. And this is where Christianity is utterly unique. He's, he's the only one that has dealt with our sin, the very thing that's keeping us. And therefore, he can sympathize with us in our weakness. When I was in college, I hung out with a small group of drummers. Um, and there was a, this one drummer at the time who was kind of well-known and everyone admired. And everybody looked up to the guy, and the guy was a little bit, a bit like a machine, that he was flawless in his playing. And one of the guys in my social circle went and took some lessons with him. We were all envious. Imagine what it's like to be in this presence of this great musician and to get to interact. And the friend's report was, it was great, he's amazing, he's a nice guy but he was not a very good teacher. So he went and the, the drummer said, okay, do this. And then the guy would try it and he'd say, no, do it like this. And then the guy tried it, he said, no, do it like this. And the sense was that this guy is so talented that he just always did it right that, that my friend who needed help figuring out what to do found that the best that he had was this example. Here's what I'm gonna do and I'm gonna keep doing it until you get it right. And he left with the sense that he never got it right. That's how some of us think of God. God is perfect, holy, upright, righteous. Let me look at him and do what he does, and then you try it and you don't do it, and so you stay away. Instead, we have this one who knows our weakness. And so when you come and you say, I can't get it right, he'll say, look at me and I'll show you. I'll, come, I'll kneel down, I'll, I'll come with you, I will be with you, and I will understand with you the things that you're being tested and you're feeling like you're failing. I'm without sin, but I'm with you as your teacher, your guide, your trainer. And therefore, we have something radically different. We have the holy, perfect, wonderful God who's worthy of all praise. But we have a God who helps us in our weakness. And we know this because he sent Jesus Christ to take on weakness. Not to sin, but to take on our sin. So that as we're trying to get our lives together, he invites us back, follow me, and I will go before you into the presence of this great and mighty Father and I will be your advocate. Friends, why, why do we need to convince each other to pray? 
let's draw near to God. Let's, let's have thankful hearts that there is a God who is good. Let's tell God exactly what we need. And when we don't want to do it, let's just admit, Lord, there's something still wrong in me. Forgive me. But don't walk away. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. He will give you grace and mercy for help in your time of need. Let me pray. Our Father, even in this gathering, we have sung, we have um, sought you, and there is always a measure of insincerity. We're here thinking about other things, we're watching the time, and yet, Lord, we're squandering the opportunity to have our souls restored and renewed because you, who are not only good, but you're good to us, invite us again. You, you welcome us today, this Sunday, as you have all the previous Sundays, with all of the imperfect things we thought and did. But you tell us not to stay away, but to draw near. Lord, our confidence is not that we live the kind of week so that we earn the spot in this church, but our confidence is this church follows Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us and went into the heavenly realms before us so that we can draw near to that great throne of grace. Our Father, grant us that joy that we would see the meaning and purpose of our lives in connection with you. Grant us that perseverance to keep praying where we're failing and frustrated. Grant us the honesty to, to see our sin without shrinking away or excusing it or, or thinking we could fix it apart from you, but help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and to follow him. Lord, do that work of your spirit to renew us, that we would be a people who pray, not because we must, but because it would be strange that we didn't. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen.